I wanted to continue heaping the praise on mothers today and say happy Mother's Day to all those moms who are raising kids through, um, from birth, adoption, foster care, in the womb, and those who are spiritual mothers to people in their lives, uh, whether you're in person with us or online. We're just so thankful for you. And I can say as a Christian man, um, and I say this to my wife, um, I would be lost without you. So uh, in a lot of different ways. <laughs> so I just wanted to, again, thank you to all the mothers out there. Um, we love you. We're um, better because of you. And I pray that you feel loved, praised, and honored today. Would you pray with me as we begin? Our Father, Scripture often depicts you in maternal ways, telling us that we will find refuge in you, like a baby bird under the protective wings of its mother. May we remember that you deeply care for us, like a mother. And because of that, you have given us your word. May we find protection, correction, and sustenance in it today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Michael Scott, Dunder Mifflin Paper Company Regional Manager in Scranton, PA, was out on a drive with Dwight Schrute, assistant to the regional manager, and they were in their car using their newly acquired GPS. The GPS has been guiding them along quite nicely until they come to an area, they're driving next to a lake, the lake's on their right, uh, where you're supposed to bear right, but the GPS says turn right, but turning right would mean you are going to be guided into the lake, and it's, it's deceptive because there's a boat drop there, and it looks like a road, and Dwight insists to Michael that it, 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 means, it means bear right, not turn right. But Michael, the driver, says repeatedly, the machine knows, the machine knows. And Dwight, to match, is yelling back at him, it can't mean that, it can't mean that, it's a lake. Michael, the driver, he wins the battle and drives the car into the lake where panic ensues. It's, it's a hilarious scene. I encourage you to go watch it afterwards. Um, but Michael chooses to follow the way of the technology. Just like Michael and Dwight, we're going to be talking today about direction and guidance and choosing the right way. In this scene, and really that whole episode, it's man versus technology. Again, I I encourage you uh, to look up that particular scene on YouTube. Um, I don't do it justice here. But in our passage today, it's not man versus technology. It's love versus knowledge. Open your Bibles today to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. First Corinthians chapter eight. Our question for today is this: What's the primary guide for the Christian life? What is the primary guide for the Christian life? I'm going to tell you up front what it is and explain that as we dive in today. 
the primary guide for the Christian life is love, not knowledge. Hear me clearly. The primary guide for the Christian life is love, not knowledge. What I'm going to show you today in 1 Corinthians 8 is that Paul states that up front in the first few verses. And then he expands the knowledge of the Christians in the Corinthian church who are talking about their own knowledge. And then afterwards, he challenges them and says that your application of that knowledge is wrong. And you need a fuller scope and you need to remember that love trumps knowledge. So he's going to show us in, I think, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13, that love is the primary guide of the Christian life, not knowledge. Read along with me as we read 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is but one God. For although there, are many, or there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former associations with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, and the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, you, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. As I stated up front, the primary guide in the Christian life is love, not knowledge. And I believe Paul lays that guideline in the first three verses where Paul states that the primary guide of the Christian life is love, not knowledge. And so we're going to look at that verse uh, by verse statement and then expansion and then challenge. So again, now that we've read the passage, let's go back and look for the textual clues that will help us to figure out why Paul is saying the primary God is love, not knowledge. So Paul states that up front. Remember, he said, now concerning food offered to idols, right? Paul's starting a new thought process here. We've covered in the last few weeks sexuality and marriage, right? We've gone through some hairy passages. Now we're coming to a new section in 1 Corinthians. And oftentimes you can know that it's a new section because Paul is using this now concerning, right? Back in verse or chapter 7, he starts off with the uh, unmarried and the widowed. He says, now concerning the betrothed. And now he's saying, now concerning 
food offered to idols, we've started a new section, a new, a new thought. And really remember, this is Paul responding to a letter that the Corinthian church wrote him. And he's addressing some of their questions that they had, and they're asking for guidance. And in this particular section, really, which starts in 8, goes all the way through chapter 10. He's under the umbrella of idolatry addressing food sacrifice to idols. And verse 9 is kind of tangential. He's like defending his rights and saying, am I not free as an apostle to do all these things? And then he comes back to the argument in chapter 10. And what he's really doing here is setting up the Corinthians to really talk about idolatry and talk about what's our approach to that. Again, the question behind is probably like this. The Corinthians are saying, are we free? Are we free, Paul? I mean, I I think we are. Are we free to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols in pagan cultic, cultic rituals? And so Paul, using that background and saying, again, they're probably using this knowledge word, right? Look with me. It says in verse one that when you're talking about idols, all of us possess knowledge. Now this knowledge, it puffs up, but love builds up. Remember, the Corinthians love knowledge. They love wisdom. And so Paul is again here addressing knowledge and wisdom. And they are saying, hey, listen, we all know this knowledge. What was that knowledge? Do you remember? It was in the middle bit, right, where Paul expands their thinking on God and says, hey, we all know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. We, we all possess this knowledge. Come on, Paul. I mean, w- w- these weaker Christians should be, should be doing this with us. Now, oftentimes, before we move on, we think of this passage as just an, just an example of what happens if you are eating meat and you found out that it was sacrificed to an idol. Paul does address that at the end of chapter 10. But even before that, I think Paul's addressing something here specifically in 1 through 13 that the Corinthians were doing. There was a group of strong Christians who were encouraging the weak Christians to come to the pagan temples to eat the idol food because, again, in the Corinthian context, if you're, if you're a newly converted Christian and you were a pagan before, you're used to, for probably decades, going and going to the temples and eating the meals that were provided afterwards, right? And so here's now some of these Corinthians who are saying, listen, we're still being invited to dinner parties. And again, temples weren't like just a place where you'd go to worship, really a modern, they were kind of like a, an ancient form of restaurants. You would go and get meat there. You would do dinners with your families or be invited to these places to eat, right, after you've sacrificed to the gods, and so Paul, these Christians are, are saying, like, listen, it's just kind of like a restaurant. We're, we're going to go up and worship or, and, and eat the food because we know that those idols aren't, aren't really anything. There's only one God but one. Now, what's the text? Because, now, again, this is a little different than maybe you've heard 1 Corinthians 8. The key text for me is verse 10. Look back down with me. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. Again, it's not like Jimmy Joe is just walking down the street and you kind of see over, over here that um, Joe Schmo is eating idol that was sacrificed to, or food that was sacrificed to an idol. It's not like you would just be walking the street and you'd see that, right? And oftentimes the temples were set outside the city and up on hills because to be on a hill was to be closer to the gods. And so what's really, I think, going on be- behind this is that there is a group of Corinthian Christians who are using their knowledge right knowledge, Paul's going to affirm, of idols really ain't nothing, and also there's no God but one, who are bringing along those weaker Christians to the pagan temples and eating the food sacrificed there. Again, that's the most logical explanation of the first 13 verses. 
And again, Paul's going to end with idolatry in chapter 10 and talking about that. Now, that I think helps us understand a little bit more here of the actions that some of these Corinthians were advocating for. They were saying, listen, knowledge should guide us, right? They're, they're encouraging this group to come with them. Listen, you, we all know the knowledge, right? We all possess knowledge, he says. But, but Paul says, that puffs up. But love, it builds up. Love builds up. Paul says, your knowledge ain't nothing compared to love. Love builds up. And Paul here is invoking the image of a building project. The best material is love, not knowledge. Again, not saying that knowledge doesn't have a place. So Paul states that up front, that really the primary guide of the Christian life, when it comes to things like this, it's, 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 it's love, not knowledge. Let me kind of maybe contemporize this for us, okay, with a couple of illustrations. Um, let's pretend here that uh, you have just taken on a new disciple who um, has no you know, Christian background. They've become a disciple of Christ. And you find out that this young man has been uh, addicted to pornography for his life prior to this, right? Um, and you know that he has some Christian friends and different things like that. And the reason I bring up this example because it's, it's happened, I've heard this before, where some Christians have told me, well, you know, pornography is really not the, the same thing. It's not real sex, so it's okay. Like, it's okay to indulge that. So imagine now if you are in that scenario as a disciple and you find out that, that, that some of that other guy's Christian friends are encouraging that. And you know that that's part of his history, right? Again, these other Corinthians, their part of their history was going to the temple to worship and eat idol food for decades, probably. And so they're inviting them back into sin and into their own destruction, Paul's going to say. Let me give you another kind of lighter example. Let's pretend that you have a diehard Seahawks fan, okay? This is somebody with means who goes to every home game. Also, any close games like down in San Francisco, they're going to fly there, right? They're, they're a season ticket holder. They're going. They're a diehard Seahawks fan, and then they become a Christian. And again, they're hearing from somebody, well, listen, you know what? Hey, church attendance, it doesn't save you. Church attendance doesn't, doesn't make you right with God. It's okay to just duck out for the entire football season. It's, it, you know, don't worry. Church attendance doesn't matter. Paul is saying, no, and again, for this diehard Seahawks fan, Seahawks worship, essentially, was an idol, right? And so bringing them back into that and encouraging that is not helping the person. That's kind of what's going on here in the Corinthian context, is Paul is fighting against people who are saying, just, come on, get it in your head. This it doesn't matter. We're just going to eat food. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You're putting your knowledge before your love. So Paul states that. And then now he's going to expand their knowledge because he's like, you know what? You guys are right, but you're not right fully. Let's look again at the second section, verses four through six. So that was the first three verses, four through six, where Paul expands their knowledge. Our knowledge of the Christian life should include existence for God. That's something Paul's going to show them. Our knowledge of the Christian life should include existence for God. Again, these strong Christians in the Corinthian church, they were right in their knowledge, but not fully. They had the idols and the one God thing, right? Paul affirms, right? Therefore, we know that an idol has no existence and that there's no God one. And again, if your Bible has the quotations, Paul's linking back to their letter, right? Um, But then he goes and he says, for although there um, may 
may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Paul's acknowledging that many people have other gods that they worship and that there are other lords that they bow down to. Yet for us, there is one God the Father, from whom are all things, for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This sounds like Colossians 1 when Paul is talking about Christ. But also, Paul is tapping back on the Old Testament. Can you guess where? He's tapping back on Deuteronomy 6 and the great Shema, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So what's Paul doing? He set us up, right? There are many gods and many lords, but he's going to say, well, you've got one God and one Lord, and he's expanding the great Shema, right? He's saying that one God, Yahweh in the Old Testament, is revealed as God the Father, and he's also that one Lord, God the Son, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so the key verses here that you need to look at, because again, the Corinthians who are holding this position are saying, it's my rights, my knowledge, I can go and, you know, do these things. And you know what, people just need to get along with that. And Paul says, you're forgetting. You're forgetting that this life just isn't about you. It's not just about you. We are made for him. Look closely. There's one God, the Father, verse 6, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul, again, is expanding the great Shema, but also reminding us that we exist to know God and to be known by him. Therefore, that humbles us and puts us in our right place and tells us that it's not all about us. And he's saying, you guys have the knowledge, you're, you're right, you, you don't, but you don't have it fully. Again, another way to kind of maybe explain this would be um, the way that I was thinking of it this week uh, when I don't know things fully. Um, when I started seminary and undergrad, I went and took a Greek course. This was my basics of biblical Greek. And uh, I began to re- read Greek. I'm not going to do any Greek for you today, but I began to read Greek and understand it and put the alphabet together. I could, I could read some very basic Greek, like in the book of 1 John or things like that, and I thought I knew some things. I really did. And then I go off to seminary, and they make me get this book here. Um, I, if you could zoom in, it is heavily footnoted and very dense. This is beyond the basics. This showed me that I didn't know anything. <laughs> I, 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 I kind of knew Greek. I knew some of it. But this showed me that, wow, there was a long way to go. And uh, still, in, in one instance when I was reading this, I just kept thinking, it's all Greek to me. Um, this, so that's the way that I think Paul is saying here. It's like, you guys have some of the knowledge. You, you've got it. But you don't have it fully, and you're forgetting that we were made for God and exist for him. We're to be known by God. We exist to be known by God and to know him. Don't forget that. So Paul, he states it up front, love is the primary God not knowledge. And then he expands the knowledge that these Christians are wielding in verses four through six. And then finally, we're going to close with looking at the challenges that Paul has. And this will be the bulk plus our application at the end. Look with me again at verse seven, where it's shown that knowledge is improperly used if it ends in the destruction of our brother or sister. Paul says, you've got this knowledge. 
However, however, not all possess this knowledge. And again, they go up and say earlier that all of us possess this knowledge. And Paul's saying, you know what? Your, your language is wrong. Not everybody possesses it. Why? Because through former association to idols, like I said, if you were a, a Gentile Christian who has now come to know Christ, your whole life prior to has been a certain, um, has been lived in a certain way. You've gone, to the, you've gone to the temples for all the feasts. You've gone and you've eaten the meat. And when you eat that meat, you know that it's for this God or that God. And you give them thanks for their provision and all these other things. So through that former association, Paul says, they still really, they eat that meat as really offered to an idol. I mean, again, we all know that habits and things like that are, are hard to, to, to break, right? Old habits die hard. Our old life, when we come to Christ, it dies hard. Sometimes, by God's miraculous intervention, somebody is completely made new, and they have no of the former vices that they did. But a lot of times, as I've seen it in my life, it's a slow and steady progression of sanctification for people who are digging themselves out of that former life. And so with these strong Corinthians saying, just come on, you got the knowledge, let's do this. Paul says, you're not considering, you're not loving them well by remembering that when they do it, they don't have that same strong conscience that you do. And in fact, um, and really, Paul's going to put himself in the weak category in chapters 9 and, and everything like that. Paul's teasing out and saying, you guys, you're strong, but I'm weak, and that's okay. I think that's the right way to live. And Paul's really associating himself in the whole book of Corinthians with the weak and saying, you think you're strong, and maybe you are, but not everybody's there. Food will not commend us to, to God, he says in verse 8. So Paul says, you're, you're, you're bringing your brothers into something that ultimately God's not going to love you anymore or love you any less if you eat that meat or not, right? Food doesn't commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He's saying really in, in kind of a sense, it's, it's neutral here, which was a staggering thought um, to many Gentile and Jew Christians, especially Jews. Verse 9, but take uh, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For, the key text that I've said in this entire passage, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak, following your example, to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Another, another, another word that ties us into this building image, right? Paul uses building image in many of his epistles. And Paul is saying, love builds up, but with your knowledge, guess what you're just doing? You're destroying that brother or sister. For whom Christ died. Again, Paul brings them back and challenges them and says, it's not just about you. You remember what Christ did for that brother or sister. He died for them. He died for them. And then he expands it even more and he challenges them, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Paul is reminding them that Christ's concern for our brothers should guide us in our, pro in, in, in our approach to our brothers and sisters. 
that we have these freedoms, we have these rights by God's grace in some disputable matters. But that should never trump our love for our brother. That should never crush and trample over our love for our brother. And really what Paul is saying is, my love for my brother or sister limits my freedom. It limits my freedom because all those things that we do in life, none of them, as best as I've really thought long about this, as best as I can think, I don't think that anything that we do is ever really done in isolation. It all adds up. That, that, that man or woman who's clicking on the pornography, it doesn't just hurt you in that moment, and it doesn't just, it's not you just sinning. If you're married or have a significant other or all these other things, like that hurts that other person. The things that we do are never done in isolation. Paul's reminding them of that, that our freedom should be limited because of love for our brothers. We mold ourselves to the task. Paul's going to say that in chapter 9. We mold ourselves to the task, the challenge ahead. Paul says, I become all things to all people that I might win some, right? For the challenge ahead, and the best way that I, uh, not the best way, but one of the ways that I kind of thought about this, and it's because someone gave me this image, but imagine for a moment that you've, you've gone on a, um, a, a long hike, a, a, a kind of strenuous hike, uh, a hike that maybe tests your limits, right? For all you hikers out there, do I have some hikers uh, here or online maybe? Uh, I commend you. Keep doing your thing. Um, that's not for me. But imagine you've gone on a strenuous and long hike, and it's kind of had some obstacles where you've had to climb up things, under things, uh, or you're one of those uh, people that does spelunking or whatever, you're crazy. Um, you're, you're going through this, this trail, and you've hiked, and all of a sudden, you know, you've, you've been confident, you've had no real slips, you've done a great job, and you feel that confidence rising, right? You're, you're puffed up a little bit, right? You're like, oh, I got this. I know I got this. This is a great day. And then you come to uh, a rock formation that has this tiny little, you know, these two giant rocks here, this tiny little thing, and you know that to get through here, you got to turn sideways, right? You got to squeeze through. Not an easy thing for me. You got to go squeeze through the rocks. Now, if you are confident and you're puffed up and you're really feeling tough, again, it, it, this is, it, the illustration falls apart a little bit, but you're not just going to go and like bump into the rocks and expect to get through, right? You have to Move your body, mold it to the shape, and squeeze through to get to the other side to finish your hike. Paul is telling the Corinthians, if you want to love your brothers well, if you want to, let's take our mission statement, make maturing disciples of Jesus who live in Christian community and bring the hope of the gospel to the world, you need to limit your freedom when it comes to your other brothers and sisters. Now, this doesn't mean that you just that we go with the weakest conscience in the room. There are, certain, there, there are things that we won't be able to unpack here. But long story short is what I'm trying to say is before you just use your rights, before you just use your freedoms, something that we Americans love, right? And it's a very good thing. Consider your brother. Consider your sister before you trample over others. So Paul has challenged them to say, you've got the knowledge, but you don't have it right. You don't have it fully. Therefore, verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I should make my brother stumble. And again, just a little textual thing. The, um, back at the beginning now, concerning food offered to idols, like the food offered to idols is one kind of compound word. Paul doesn't use that word back down here at meat. Paul's saying, you know what? He's not even saying idol offered, uh, meat offered to idols. He's like, if it's just meat, I, 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 
I'm not going to do it. He's, he's just basically saying, you know what? I'm going to take one step further. And I'm not even going to worry about it. I'm going to do something different. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to even eat that meat. Lest I make my brother stumble and sin against them and sin against Christ. So, Paul has stated up front that the primary guide of the Christian life is love, not knowledge. He's shown us and expanded our knowledge that our knowledge of the Christian life should include our existence for God. You can have right, some of the right principles and truths, but if you don't remember that it's not about us, that it's about Him, you're going to trample over your brothers and sisters with your knowledge. And then he's challenged us to see that knowledge is improperly used if it ends in the destruction of our brother. My application is this, and it's kind of cheesy. It is Mother's Day. Let, no, no, that's not, that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying, I love, I gush, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm <laughs> Let love be your guide. Let love be your guide. I um, have some things that maybe are disputable matters amongst you. Should we play video games? Which video games? What about playing cards? Should we watch TV or movies? Should we read certain novels like Harry Potter? What, what, how, do, how should we treat Sunday? Is it okay to skip church? How about the shop at the mall on Sunday or watch a football game? May we occasionally smoke cigars or drink alcohol in moderation? Should Christians give 10% or, or, or more? What, what do we do there? Should we celebrate Halloween or not? Should we follow... Um, or should we put our kids in public or private school? How far is too far in, um, in a physical relationship prior to marriage? How often should a church meet? What about things like the, the rapture? When is it? And how should Christians prepare? Should we avoid certain music? Bible translation, is there only one version that we should use? Do we cast off things like the message or the New Living Translation? What about using a Bible app instead of the physical thing? How should we care for God's world? I could go on and on. That's just a sampling. Let love be our guide in these disputable matters. And when it comes to us remembering ourselves, we do not do our things in isolation. We consider our brother or sister, and we love them because, again, the primary guide in all things, if you've come to an, an, an issue with someone in your family in your clo- in your, or your working relationships or things like that, and it comes down to a matter of conscience. One, be willing to um, understand their position and their own conscience and why they hold those things. And then for your own position and their position, let's match those with Scripture. Let's match those and try and match them to God's will to see if we're following suit. But let's be gracious. Let's be loving and we, not saying that we have to go and change our conscience, but let's at least attempt to consider loving our brother or sister first before we just call them stupid, run them over, trample over them, whatever it might be. Let's remember to love. Let love be our guide. If we get truth right, but we get love wrong, we're wrong. What I wanted to do is end with a prayer from Andy Nacelli. In his book, um, Conscience, I recommend it. It's a good book if you're wanting to know more about conscience. And again, um, we didn't really cover all of that fully. I'm not giving you the how-tos and everything like that. But 
what I wanted to do is end with a prayer, a prayer of love for our brothers and sisters. So would you pray for me as I read from this? Father, we are finite and sinful people. And for a complex of reasons that you know far better than we do, we disagree with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ on all sorts of disputable matters. Would you please give us grace and welcome those who disagree with us on various disputable issues? Would you give us grace not to look down on those who are stricter than we are? Would you please give us grace not to be judgmental towards those who exercise more freedom than we do? Would you please give us grace to be fully convinced of our positions in our own conscience? Would you give us the grace to practice our freedoms and restrictions for your glory and to assume that others are doing the same? Would you help us to remind us that some of these disputable matters need to be put in perspective, knowing that we will all someday stand before your judgment seat? Would you give us grace to build each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy? And would you give us grace to not flaunt our freedom or expect others to be as strict as we are? Lord, we're weak and selfish. We need so much endurance and encouragement to live with our brothers and sisters in this way of peace. You are the God of endurance and encouragement. Please grant us to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.